From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And today's show is called Voices of Hope, True Stories of Resilience, Recovery, and Renewal. It's part of Carnegie Hall's Voices of Hope Festival, which examines the life-affirming power of music and the arts during times of crisis, and features true personal stories from writers Susan Zalouf, Anthony Murphy, and Sarah Bracey White. Lengthy stay-at-home orders encourage intimacy, whether we like it or not. We were only there a week before Lou went into labor. She had loved being pregnant, happy to eat and loll at the end. Mama was a school teacher. Books were a source of knowledge. For me, books were an escape from a life I could not change. And on today's Between the Lines segment, Suzanne McConnell recalls some pearls of wisdom from her friend and mentor, Kurt Vonnegut. You're in the entertainment business, Kurt Vonnegut told us, when I was his student at the Iowa Writers Workshop in the late 60s. This was startling to hear. Entertainment business implied Hollywood with its crass glitter and flash. That's all just ahead on Read 650. First up today is American writer, furniture designer, and voice artist Susan Zalouf. Susan lived and worked in New York, Rome, and Los Angeles before settling in Ireland, where she's made her home, and where she recorded the piece that opens today's show. Here's Susan Zalouf reading... Things matter. While locked in with her young family in rural County Carlow, unable to access her Dublin studio, an artist friend wondered what she might do to be more useful during the months ahead. Her work tells intimate stories of Ireland's landscape, embedding lustrous hand-cast resins with found objects and collected organic materials such as wildflowers, thistles, mosses, lichens, grasses, seaweeds and shells, delicate and fragile, encased, preserved, and contextualized, but with attention turned towards PPE, vaccines, and ventilators, she questioned when, if ever, collectors might consider beautiful things necessary again. Ireland's beauty keepers, its makers, designers, and artisans, alone in their studios, at the bench, the easel, the sewing machine, the lathe, the wheel, the forge, the drawing board, wonder how to go on making in an upside-down world. All of us find ourselves at sea, tasked with redrawing the map, not to pinpoint buried treasure, but to determine what is truly worth having. And so, from the confines of our cottage in the rural midlands of Ireland, we keep ourselves safe as we watch, in awe, the brave ones at risk. After Earth, a badly reviewed 2013 sci-fi movie, redeems itself with a Pinterest-worthy inspirational quote. Printed out and taped to the bathroom mirror, it helps keep the night at bay. Danger is very real, but fear is a choice. We listen to worried friends, 
creatives questioning whether their practices will survive, searching for new ways to work, choosing to be more curious than fearful. In response, we consider how we might deepen our commitment to supporting them by surrounding ourselves with meaningful things and sold by the hand of the Maker. Lengthy stay-at-home orders encourage intimacy, whether we like it or not. Interior landscapes have replaced long-haul destinations. The terra incognita are secrets we've been keeping from others, perhaps even from ourselves. Go there. Keeping each other at arm's length finds us more focused on family and friends, our living spaces, walls and wardrobes, our balconies and backyards. We call, we cull, paint, plant, tidy up. Cocooning promises transformation, as if, at the end of isolation, the cocooned emerge as butterflies with painted rice paper wings. Writer Robert McFarlane chose Karen as a word of the day during the pandemic from the Gaelic Karn, a stone stack that acts as path marker, a guide indicating the way forward during bad weather when the route is uncertain and the going tough. More than just an encroachment of boulders, it means there are those who've preceded us, once lost themselves, and having managed to find their way, made a conscious decision to leave something meaningful behind. My husband finds an abandoned nest wedged between the thorny branches of a hawthorn, a fairy tree, in the back field. Setting money aside, we commission our friend to cast the nest in resin, part of her ongoing Caliology series. Each nest unique to its maker and environment, a testament, a sign, a memento mori. Susan Zalouf lives outside Dublin with her husband and two Rottweilers. She's a columnist for The Gloss Magazine, published monthly with the Irish Times. Anthony Murphy has worked and performed on the open mic spoken word scene in the UK and New York City for the last 12 years. He's written several poetry chapbooks, two illustrated children's books, and a novel, Shiftless, published by Atmosphere Press. This is Anthony Murphy, recorded at home, reading Steady. Our house was a red brick semi. It had a small homemade driveway and many other do-it-yourself features that needed fixing. It did have a back garden, although one with a massive mound of mud that my wife Lou said I could remove to create a patio. Projects. We had our first mortgage and our first house. I was 23 years old. I started digging. Digging, I found a tortoise skeleton in the mound. I was confused. Where do you bury inconsequential bones that you just dug up? We were only there a week before Lou went into labour. She had loved being pregnant, happy to eat and loll at the end. She'd been through it once before, and our little Frank was two and a half now. He was ready for someone to lovingly beat with his worldly knowledge. 
That night, Lou went to the hospital with me driving. Her mum looked after Frank. I thought I could deal with it, as we had midwives that we knew. Lou tore herself inside out giving birth. Johnny came out fine and was swabbed, swaddled and placed in my arms for a minute. But Lou's placenta was still attached to the uterus and all that part of her came out in front of us. She was trying to look down and wonder what was going on as the midwives dithered. They tried to push parts back inside as Lou looked at me, holding our healthy newborn kid, and I noticed all the blood, and we all knew that something was not right, but it was happening. Lou was angry. I could see that she was. I couldn't even tell her to breathe. She looked me right in the eye, held my gaze, and didn't say a word. Shook her head at the ridiculousness of the situation. She wasn't angry with me. We were together, but she was the one in peril. She knew I couldn't help. We both saw how much blood was on the table and heard that they couldn't reach a surgeon yet. I still had the baby in my arms and tried to keep eye contact with Lou. We just looked at each other and, and waited as she kept shaking her head slowly. Eventually, the anaesthetist turned up and he calmed the whole situation down. Lou was grateful for him, but there were still problems. She had lost a lot of blood, and the uterus was not inside her body. They took her away to operate, and they took the baby away too. I went home. I phoned Lou's mother, and I phoned my mother, and I cried, and I said I needed their help. We were all at the hospital the next day, but Lou was in the ICU, so we couldn't see her. She wasn't good. They said she had lost eight pints of blood and they had to give her a hysterectomy. She was stabilising and had to stay in for a week at least. I remembered the look on Lou's face then. There was anger, but also resignation. And I can't talk for her, but I know her. There was already the thought of retribution. She was giving me a signal to get the bastards that had done this. Whether they be the non-existent gods or the incompetent scientists... She was mad that it could even happen. And what do you do against such forces? Because all she wanted was another baby. I got to take Johnny the next day. I fed him and his brother with two grandma's help until Lou came home. Lou recovered on our couch for a few months more while I finished the patio. I'm not a quick worker. Time slowed for all of us, though. We had a tortoise skeleton watching from the bookshelf. We had made a home and grown a family out of this mess. Anthony Murphy was most recently published in the Westchester Review and The Long Islander. He lives by the Hudson River in Yonkers with his family and two dogs. Sarah Bracey White is a writer, teacher, and arts consultant with degrees from Morgan State University and the University of Maryland. She's an inaugural fellow at the Purchase College Writer Center, and her contribution to our special Carnegie Hall Voices of Hope Festival event is Food for Thought. Here's Sarah Bracey White. The only books in the house where I grew up were a big, unabridged dictionary, a 28 volume world book encyclopedia, and the King James Version of the Bible. 
The paucity would have been understandable if I'd known that my mother grew up in a house without any books, because her mother was illiterate, and her father could barely read. Mama seldom spoke about her life as a child. Her focus was on teaching school and sending us to school even when we were sick. Though she had only two years of college training, Mama was a school teacher. Every summer for 14 years, she took classes at nearby Morris College, finally earning her diploma two months before my brother, her fifth and last child, was born. To Mama, reading was not for pleasure. Books were a source of knowledge, knowledge that would change your life. For me, books were an escape from a life I could not change. Trapped in a small South Carolina town where the color of my skin barred me from the newly built Carnegie Library on nearby Liberty Street, I reveled in the library on the second floor of Lincoln, the segregated school I attended from grades 7 through 12. My family's tight budget excluded me from the daily hot lunches sold in Lincoln's cafeteria. Each day, after hurriedly eating the bologna sandwich my mother spiced up with hot sauce, I rushed out of the cafeteria and up a short flight of stairs to a place where I could devour as much as I wanted free of charge. At the top of the stairs, I pushed open the door to a large rectangular room, the mirror image of the cafeteria below, where instead of tables, rows and rows of evenly spaced, honey-colored, waist-high wooden shelves lined with books of all shapes and sizes marched across the room. Sunlight usually flooded the space through windows that covered three sides of the room. At the windowless end, Behind a low counter made of the same blonde wood as the shelves sat a middle-aged woman whose round body and sparkly eyes revealed the satiation that comes from many good meals followed by many good books. I wanted a life just like hers. On my first visit to the library, I was overwhelmed by the sight of so many books in one place. I wandered from bookshelf to bookshelf, my neck arched at an awkward angle to read the titles without moving the books from their assigned places. The librarian, whom I came to know as Miss Cuthbert, noticed me and called out that it was okay to take books from the shelves. She also said that if I got a library card, I could take up to six home each week. I got a library card that very day, and thereafter proceeded to spend most of my lunch hour perusing Lincoln's collection. I devoured the words in those books as greedily as my classmates gobbled cherry cobbler from their stainless steel lunch trays. At the rate you're going, you'll have read every book in this library before you graduate, Miss Cuthbert once told me. That was my plan. Lincoln's Library fed my love of words and people when I was too poor to buy books. I lost myself in stories about people whose lives were even more hard-scrabbled than mine. 
though some had lives far better than mine. Frequently the bad lives got better. Those were the lives I longed to inhabit. Their stories taught me that change was possible. They also taught me that determination and effort were the catalyst for that change. Those stories seeped into my being, assuring me that I would not always be a poor colored girl living under separatist rules. They also drove me into the arms of learning and became the engine for my journey toward becoming a librarian and a writer. Sarah Bracey White's published works include Primary Lessons, a memoir, and The Wanderlust, a South Carolina folktale. Her essays have been published in the New York Times, the Afro-American newspapers, and the Journal News. She's a frequent contributor to Read 650 and lives with her husband in Ossining, New York. The stories you're hearing today, along with many others, are available in book and ebook form. It's just one of dozens of themed collections we've published, and they help fund our mission to promote writers. They're great gifts and perfect bedtime reading, and you can view all of our themed anthologies, including What We Wore, Summer Jobs, The Great Outdoors, and many others, under the Shop tab on our website, read650.org. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Karen Duquesse, Lisa Donati-Meyer, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. And our show was produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from Carnegie Hall in New York City, whose mission is to present extraordinary music and musicians on its three stages. Carnegie Hall brings the transformative power of music to the widest possible audience, provides visionary education programs, and fosters the future of music through the cultivation of new works, artists, and audiences. Ignite passion. Embrace joy. For more information and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org. Read 650 contributor Suzanne McConnell was a student of Kurt Vonnegut's at the Iowa Writers' Workshop when Vonnegut was in residence finishing his masterpiece, Slaughterhouse-Five. Vonnegut and McConnell became friends and remained so for the rest of his life. In this edition of Between the Lines, Suzanne recalls some pearls of wisdom from her friend and mentor. You're in the entertainment business, Kurt Vonnegut told us, when I was his student at the Iowa Writers' Workshop in the late 60s. This was startling to hear. Entertainment business implied Hollywood with its crass glitter and flash. I had gotten into the workshop on the merit of my first story, an autobiographically-based 30-page cris de cour about a young woman working as a nurse's aide in a nursing home. I'd also been thrust into involvement with prisons and segregation in the previous two years. I was bursting with sorrow and rage. I wasn't thinking about entertaining anyone. I just wanted to get all this off my chest. 
Everyone in the workshop had things to get off their chests. Our instructors did too. It seemed that Kurt had the most. He was riding Slaughterhouse-Five. We knew his backstory. A third-generation descendant of Indianapolis German-Americans, he'd been in World War II 20-some years earlier as a private. He'd been captured after a month, held a prisoner of war underground in Dresden, Germany, which we, the Americans and allies, then firebombed to smithereens. Now at Iowa at age 44, after five previous novels, he was working on his big book, Grappling with That War. These were soul-scouring experiences, and we were in the entertainment business? Eventually, I understood he meant this. We had to play by the rules of the game of fiction well enough so that we could get across what was in the rag and bone shop of our hearts. He himself made up entire worlds, branched far out on a science fiction limb in order to be able to tell his own truths. We had to be like magicians or pickpockets, distracting the audience by entertaining while we were really up to saying those things we most wanted to say. Practically, Kurt exhorted in workshops, that meant your primary tasks are to hook the reader, then keep the reader reading. Vonnegut knew the distinction between spinning a yarn and the voltage that caused the yarn to spin. Of all the things he taught, what he said about the entertainment business I would come to discover was the most complex and important. His final assignment ended, tellingly, with this dual exhortation. Write like a human being. Write like a writer. Suzanne McConnell is the author, along with Kurt Vonnegut, of Pity the Reader, on writing with style. Suzanne's writing has appeared in the Huffington Post, Reader's Digest, Poets and Writers, and many others. She taught writing at Hunter College for 30 years and serves as fiction editor of the Bellevue Literary Review. She and her husband, the artist Gary Kuhn, live in New York City and Wellfleet, Massachusetts. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show and a place we invite writers of all genres to contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. To share your observations, click the submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you will also find open submission calls for upcoming shows. Read 650 is a nonprofit literary organization with a mission to promote writers with this forum for true personal stories told five minutes and 650 words at a time. Thanks again to writers Susan Zalouf, Anthony Murphy, Sarah Bracey White, and Suzanne McConnell. If you like what you heard today, please consider a donation to support our mission to promote writers. Please tell your friends about us and help spread the word about the spoken word. This episode of Read 650 was part of Carnegie Hall's very first all-digital festival, Voices of Hope, exploring the life-affirming power of music and the arts. 
With streamed performances that range from orchestral and chamber works to folk and jazz, Voices of Hope features music that inspires change and lifts the human spirit. For complete festival details and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org slash voicesofhope. For more Read 650, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or at read650.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.